We'll go ahead and open up to Romans chapter 8. And I hear it. Whoop, whoop. That's very appropriate, very appropriate. Uh, Romans 8. We are going to uh, tackle the first four verses. Uh, Romans 8, 1 through 4. If you would, please turn there with me in your Bibles and follow along. Romans 8. Chapters 1 through 4. Paul writes, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. All right, let me pray for us and our time and ask for God's grace and strength as we approach His Word. Lord God, we are humbled by Your Word. We know that it is true. We know that it is indeed Your Word. God, we... I see our sin, we see our great need for you, and we see your great grace and your love and your mercy. And Lord, we pray that that would be apparent this evening as we seek to understand you more clearly, to love you more fully, and to worship you more and more each day. I ask that you would strengthen me and in my own weaknesses. Uh, Lord, that it would not be a hindrance to your message and gospel and truth to be proclaimed. I pray in Christ's name, amen. Uh, for those who have been around for a while, you may have uh, probably have heard me speak of this uncle before, maybe even in this way. But I have many uh, aunts and uncles on my Asian side, and uh, one of my uncles was a longtime missionary uh, in many different um, countries. I don't know if he still is or not. He's always somewhere. I don't know if he's doing mission work or not. But in going to mission work, I think he was in China for a long time, and he'd come back on occasion, and he would always bring back all these stuff. I mean, they're mostly knockoffs. Like, we didn't have iPads at the time, but let's say if, like, instead of an iPad, it'd be like an e-pad or, or, you know, just like these things that looked like very similar, but it was, it, it wasn't the real thing, or he, he would bring back like pirated movies, where it was like movies that weren't even released in theaters here in America, but they were in China, and like, oh, cool, like, what is this movie? And it's like literally this guy, like, holding up a camcorder in a movie theater, and like, you see people walking by. But what he would do is, anytime he'd bring something, he'd like, gift it to us, and his famous line every time was, no, oh, this is the best one and that's what he'd say. He'd say, this is the, the, the best one. And it was a joke because it was not the best one. Not even close. Like I said, it was some knockoff. It was something that he says, like, oh, yeah. Like, no, like, you don't need a Rolex. You need, like, a Rulex. It's the best one. You know, and, like, he, like, gives us this watch or something, and it breaks, like, ten minutes later. <laughs> now, many people coin Romans chapter 8 as... The best one. And I'm very cautious to say that any one uh, given book or any one given chapter is 
the best one, because uh, they're all God's inspired word and are, are rich with his wonderful truths. That being said, this this chapter, chapter eight, is truly deep and, and a rich and magnificent chapter. Um, that's why I got a couple whoop whoops when I said we're in Romans chapter eight, right? Uh, when when the COVID lockdown first hit a couple years ago, um, people were trying out different hobbies. You know, like oh, I'm going to get into baking. Oh, I'm going to get into farming or you know whatever. Like, <laughs> like and everyone got into like these weird things and like yeah, I'm going to like be an expert at this. Uh, yeah, because that's the problem. You need more time. No, you, you're just horrible at these things. But anyways, so people thought that since they had this time, they'd be great. And some people were like, oh, I'm going to memorize more scripture. And, that, and that's a good thing to do. And I think it was John Piper. I could be incorrect, but I think it was John Piper who suggested that he said, if you're going to memorize scripture right now, memorize Romans chapter 8. And that was his recommendation. Uh, if you attend uh, the school that I teach at, in my eighth grade Bible class, the eighth graders memorized all of Romans 8, right? Where's Robbie? Robbie. And Keelan? You were in, right? But, but you're supposed to memorize all of Romans chapter 8. Uh, it is indeed a, a wonderful, wonderful chapter. Why? Uh, for many reasons, but I, I believe it's because it so clearly lays out the gospel. Uh, from start to finish. Uh, and so from that standpoint, it, that is the best one, as in the gospel is the best one. Uh, now, if, if I were to pinpoint or, or specify an aspect of, of salvation, I think that this chapter primarily talks about, I would say Romans 8 is about assurance, about assurance of our salvation. I mean, he starts off saying that there's now no condemnation in verse 1, and he ends by saying that nothing can separate us from his love, verse 39. And everything in between further support, supports that point of this assurance that the Christian has in his salvation. And tonight we begin this chapter by looking at the first four verses. And what better way to start this glorious chapter than by putting the gospel on full display. And that's exactly what Paul does here in these four verses. Verse 1 serves as kind of a thesis statement or, or a summary of the entire chapter, describing the magnificent truths of the gospel for the Christian. That's, he just lays that out in the first verse. And then verses 2 and 3 show how, how the entire trinity is active in our salvation, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then verse 4 shows the Christian's natural response to the gospel, which is the pursuit of holiness. So he just lays it right out there, and that's what we're going to dive into tonight. All right, so those are going to be our three main sections. Our first is the magnificent truth in verse 1. that He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Keelan, you memorized that one, did you not? Yeah, you did. Okay, good. He got through verse 1. So that is this magnificent truth that, that we're talking about well, for our section here, the magnificent truth. What we're talking about is, is really the gospel. That's the magnificent truth I'm talking about. And, and he starts off by saying, there is therefore. Now, when we approach a therefore, we have to ask what question? What is it therefore? What is the therefore therefore? Thank you, Kay. Right? When you see a therefore, you ask, well, what is the therefore therefore? And I don't believe the therefore is just referring to the immediate context of Romans 7. There's some implication there. But rather, I think it's referring to chapters 1 through 7. Everything up to this point. That the truth of the gospel is magnificent because of what has been said 
up until now. Here are just some highlights, some reminders of some of the things from the past seven chapters. I'll be quoting them. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Romans 1.18. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Romans 2.5. None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Romans 3, 10 and 11. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Romans 5, 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Romans 6, 12. As we heard last week, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death, Romans 7, 24. And it is in light of all of this and more that Paul now says there is therefore, in light of everything I just said, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. What a magnificent statement and truth to unfold after everything he has just said. How are we to understand how magnificent the truth of the gospel is unless we understand what we've been saved from? Right? We see so much of that in the first seven chapters. So let's begin looking at verse 1 together. And, I, and it is jam-packed, this small little verse. And so we're going to do our best to unpack it. And I think the best way for us to do that is by working our way backwards through the verse. Okay, So we're going to identify three truths that we see in this verse, working our way backwards. And so the first truth is that this magnificent truth, the gospel, is only for the Christian. All right, so truth number one, that this magnificent truth is only for the Christian. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The requirement of this amazing truth comes at the end of the statement in which he specifies who are in Christ Jesus. There are two different people in this world, those who are in Christ Jesus and those who are not. That's it. You fall under one of those two categories. This goes back to what we talked about in Romans chapter 5. You are either in Adam or you are in Christ. One or the other, in Adam or in Christ. By your very nature, you are in Adam. That is, you are in your sin and separated from God. That there is a wall of hostility between you and God. That is our natural state. However, by the grace of God, you can be found in Christ. And it is being found in Christ that this magnificent truth is a reality for you. But it is exclusive in this way. All of this is only true for the ones who are in Christ Jesus. And if you are not in Christ, if you are still apart from him, if you are not a Christian... You cannot currently say that there is therefore now no condemnation for you. And my hope and prayer is that God has chosen you before the foundations of the world. And if indeed he has, then one day you will victoriously say that there is no condemnation for you. If you are not in Christ, these promises are not true for you. In fact, it's quite the opposite. The promise that is true for you is that you will be condemned. That the wage of your sin is death. 
And the just penalty for your sin is the eternal wrath of God. So if you are not a Christian, I urge you, I urge you non-Christian to respond to the gospel. And to respond by placing your faith in Jesus Christ and by repenting of your sins and bowing your knee in submission to Christ as your King, as your Lord, as your Savior. If you are a Christian, then you ought to rejoice at this wonderful statement that says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are in Christ Jesus. Praise God. There is no greater news to be found than to be in Christ Jesus. And it is only by the grace of God that you are in Christ Jesus. And it is because you are in Christ Jesus that you can confidently say here tonight that there is now no condemnation for you. Like, does, that, does that not like, revive your soul? Does that not fill you with great joy, Christian? Does that not cause you to, to, to want to run out of these doors and just tell everyone the great news that there is no more condemnation for you? Does it not stir in you a desire to love others and to love God? Has the sweetness of this deep, magnificent truth grown cold in your soul, Christian? Has it grown cold? That you, you read the words, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, okay. I understand. I've heard that before. You are in Christ Jesus, Christian. What is sweeter than that? Rejoice, beloved. And being found in Christ. Secondly, as we work our way backwards in this first verse, the second truth is that there is no condemnation for the Christian. There's no con- <clears throat> excuse me. There's no condemnation for the Christian. First, wh- what is it we're talking about when we say condemnation? What does that mean to be condemned? It is a to be condemned. It is a sentencing to a punishment. To be condemned means that that we've been found guilty and have been sentenced to a punishment. And this is true for all of us. That we've all, every single one of us, have been found guilty. You, me, we've all been found guilty. And until you fully accept the fact that you truly stand guilty before God, you will not see the magnificence of the gospel. The truth is you are guilty, and the truth is you have been sentenced to a punishment. And what's the verdict of the sentence? Remember Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This is your verdict. This is my verdict. This is our sentence for what we've done. This is our condemnation. But Paul says there is no condemnation for the Christian. Now this is where the English doesn't do it justice. Because in the Greek text, the word is strongly emphasized. It's a super no. Like it's, it's a strong, negative no that cannot be ignored. He's not saying there's no condemnation. He's saying there's no condemnation for the Christian. Like he's emphatic about it. Not a chance. No way. None. The condemnation which you have earned is gone forever for good. That means that you don't currently have condemnation on your account, and it means that you never will. Never, Christian. It's impossible. If you are truly in Christ, you will never be condemned. You are completely free in Christ and will always, forever, eternally remain free in Christ. 
You cannot lose this. This is the eternal security that you have. This is what he's starting with, that you are eternally secure in him. No condemnation, not a chance. Christian, even remember the immediate context of chapter 7. No matter how deep you are in chapter 7, no matter how much you feel that struggle with sin, and you feel like, man, I want to do the thing. I can't do the thing I want to do, and I just keep sinning, and it's deep. Know with confidence, Christian, that there is Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You are secure. You are free. This is now, and this is tomorrow, and this is forever. All of your sins, all of your failures, every penalty that you owe, Christian, has been paid for by the blood of Christ and has been forgiven by the grace and the mercy of God. The Christian will never receive the eternal death penalty for their sins. You deserve it, Christian. You earned it, Christian. But you will never receive it. Ever. Because Christ in full took the penalty that you earned so that you may be set free. So that you would not be condemned. Now, where does this leave the Christian? Remember, we said this is for those who are in Christ Jesus. What about those who are not in Christ Jesus? Where does this leave the non-Christian? Condemned. Condemned. And it leaves you guilty before a just God. It leaves you in the courtroom of God with no defense. Just the evidence against you stacked up. It leaves you with the verdict of eternal death and the eternal wrath of God upon you. But this does not leave you hopeless. Left alone, you are hopeless. But Christ's invitation is open to all. And he welcomes you with open arms. He says, come as you are. Sinful. Rotten. Stained. He is the one who can give you life. But thirdly, and the last we'll see in this first verse, last truth is that there has been a positional change for the Christian. There has been a positional change for the Christian. He says, now, there is therefore now no condemnation. This means something new has happened. Now means something new, something has changed. You were one way, but you are now a different way. It means you were once condemned, but now you are not. There's been a change in your position with God, Christian. The Christian now no longer has condemnation upon them. This is incredible news. That sentence, that verdict is no longer upon you, Christian. You are free. You can rejoice with knowing that you are no longer condemned now. There's a difference. My fear, my concern is that sometimes we can take this too lightly. Like there, there ought to be a huge weight lifted off your shoulders. I, 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 I struggle to think of an example here. I thought of two that are both very poor. But I'm going to say them anyways. Maybe when you were younger, 
or maybe now, James. Maybe we'll, we'll see. Okay. When, when, when you were younger, you were, you know, your family went to someone else's house. You're hanging out. You did something you shouldn't. Okay. James. And and your dad pulls you aside and says, James, when we get home, you're gonna get a spanking. And so you're dreading it, and you're like, oh man. But what are you thinking? Oh, I hope he forgets. <laughs> Every one of you have thought that. Oh, I hope he forgets. Right, and so on the on the drive home, you don't you don't say anything. Oh, I had a lovely time at the Bernards, and, and, and you know whatever. And then you get home, you just go straight to your, like you you don't make eye contact, you don't say anything, and you hope he forgets. Why? That whole time you're just nervous, and and, and you're just you're just clamming up. You're you're scared of it. Okay, bad example, but I'm gonna come back to it. Another example, if you imagine you did something horrible. <laughs> and, like so bad, like you're, you're, and you're just, you're guilty, and, and so all the evidence is clear against you. No, no question, you're guilty, and the, and the sentence is the death penalty. Okay, like that's how bad it was. Like, yep, no question. And so whatever, it's like, yeah, in one week, like you're getting the electric chair, and like so for that week, you're just like, oh, like you're, you're dreading it, and, you know. And the, every day that's getting closer and closer. But right before, the night before, like. If you were pardoned from that, if all of a sudden they said, James, like, no, like, you don't have to go to the electric chair. Like, all of a sudden, you would feel this immense weight lifted off. Right, James? Hallelujah. Yes. <laughs> right? Okay, now this is a horrible example again, but just bear with me. Okay? Like, even greater, okay, God doesn't forget. So the dad example, right? God doesn't forget. But that weight that was lifted off, like, oh, I don't have that punishment. Like, even greater it is when, when we can say, now there's no condemnation. Like, what if your dad didn't forget, but instead he pointed to your brother and he said, he, he took your punishment for you, right? Or what if the judge said, look, yeah, all this evidence still points to you, but he's taking the death penalty in your place. Like, wow. Like, man, what, I mean, what, what, what would you be feeling would, would, would that not move you in, in, in such a way of, of gratitude and thanksgiving? Would, would you not be filled with great joy? Would you not now try to make the most of the life that you now have? Like, would you, would you not just be just free, like this weight lifted off of you? Like how much more do you feel the eternal weight lifted off when you hear that you are no longer condemned, Christian? You are flat out guilty before God, but in Christ Jesus, you now have no condemnation. Like that is the greatest news. Your position with God has changed, and it's not because you've caused it, but it's only happened because of the grace of God. By no means can the Christian say that he has no condemnation because anything he's achieved on his own. Do not be fooled by that. Do not be deceived by your own arrogance. You see, the change in your position with God, being moved from a child of wrath to a child of God, is not at all because of your own attractiveness, because of your own, uh, yeah, look how good I look before God, because of all the good things I did, because of my church attendance, because of this, because of that. So that's why, no, it is all purely by the grace of God. Even more reason to give all glory and praise and thanks to him. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But secondly, as we look at the next few verses, we see the Trinitarian work in salvation. 
these verses outline the gospel in such a beautiful way that in it we see the working of all three parts of the Trinity. Did it, did it not? Thanks, thank you. Thank you. The Trinitarian work. So we're going to look at all. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And what we see in these verses. Okay, There's obviously more to each part, but what we see in just these few verses. First, we'll see God the Father. He's the author and the judge. God the Father is the author and the judge. God the Father is the author of salvation. He is the one in whom salvation comes from. He is the giver of life. He is the one, says Ephesians 1.4, who has chosen us before the foundations of the world. It is God's plan of salvation. Not ours. Not the Pope's. Not Joseph Smith's. It's God's plan of salvation. And he is the one who sent Jesus. Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own Son. It is his sending God to the Father. It is his plan. It is his initiation that we can even be saved. And God would have been perfectly just to have never sent Christ and to never have redeemed his people. He would have been right in doing so. But it is God who is rich in mercy because of his great love that we can be saved. Write down, you don't have to turn there, write down 1 John 4, 9 and 10 and listen to what John writes. John writes, in this the love of God was made manifest among us. That God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's not that we love God. But it's that he first loved us. If you are in Christ. God has chosen you. He has initiated love towards you. Not that you loved him. But that he loved you. Even while you were his enemy. You remember Romans chapter 5. And this God has then adopted you to his family. And he has given you riches upon riches and love upon love and grace upon grace. Beloved, your cup overflows. What an incredible God we have. Salvation starts with the Father. He is the author of salvation. Not only is God the author of salvation, but God the Father is our judge. He is the one who we are accountable to. And God is a just judge. He cannot overlook sin. When we stand before God at the judgment seat, he must remain just. He cannot look the other way. He, he, he cannot be partial. He cannot be unjust. He must remain a just judge always. Then how is it that the Christian can be made right? How is it that Christian can be made innocent in the eyes of God if he is to remain just? Because of what it says in verses 3 and 4, that God sent his own son in the likeness of sinful men in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us. See, it's because of Christ, and we're going to look into this more shortly. It's because of Christ that we can be made right before God. God sent his own son that we would be saved. God is the one that we need to be saved from. It is his judgment. And it is his, it is his wrath that we need saving from. We need to be saved from God the Father. But he is also the one who provides the way. 
He is the author. He is the one who sent his son. He is the one who has saved us from himself. God the Father. Next we see God the Son. He is the substitute and the redeemer. God the Son. He is the substitute and the redeemer. Jesus Christ is our substitute. Why do we need a substitute? Because we've broken the law. And we stand guilty before just God, as we just said. We are bound by the law. And the sinful corruption of our flesh made the law powerless. Remember, we've gone over this. And so instead of us keeping the law and being saved by it, which we can't be, what? The law condemns us. The law exposes our unrighteousness, exposes our sinfulness, exposes our imperfection. We cannot keep the law and we stand guilty before God. But Jesus is different. Christ came in the likeness of sinful flesh, fulfilled the law on behalf of all Christians, and became our perfect, ultimate, sufficient substitute. And what does it mean that he came in the likeness of sinful flesh that he says in verse 3? Jesus is fully God. Yes. 100%. And he's also fully man. Yes. 100%. He's in the likeness of sinful flesh. In the outward appearance of sinful flesh. He was a real man. Able to feel. Able to be tempted. Able to die. 100% man. But Christ never had a sinful nature. He himself never had a speck. Not a drop. Not an ounce of sin within himself. As we see in Hebrews 4.15. We have one, speaking of Jesus, who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. Christ lived a fully perfect life, fulfilling the law of God. So much so that you can say in Matthew 5, 17, I did not come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill it. Christ, in the likeness of sinful flesh, kept the law on our behalf. Look at verse 4. Why? In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That requirement in the law has been fulfilled in us through Jesus Christ. And guys, notice, you probably don't notice, I'll tell you that it is a passive verb, might be fulfilled in us. It's passive. What does that mean? It means that it's not something that we do. We don't fulfill the law. It's something that's been done for us. We cannot fulfill the law, but Christ has done so on our behalf. And so Jesus became the propitiation for our sins, standing in our place, as we read in 1 John 4. For him to be our propitiation means that Christ stood in our place and fully absorbed the wrath of God so that we would not need to receive a single drop of it. But Christ has fully satisfied it on our behalf. That is him being the propitiation for our sins. Christian, our full sentence of condemnation, it did not just go away. God did not just forgive and forget. He didn't pretend like it never happened. No, our full sentence of condemnation was poured on Christ at Calvary. He is our sin bearer. God remains just only because Christ became the propitiation for our sins. In doing so, He's become our perfect substitute, you see. It's as if we've switched spots. That he satisfied the righteous requirement of the law. He became, and then he became condemned for us. And he transferred his righteous, perfect obedience that he earned onto our account. 
we switched. Not only is he our substitute, but Jesus Christ is our redeemer. We've said this many times before, maybe review or maybe new for some, that to be redeemed means what? To be purchased. To be redeemed means to be purchased. And to purchase something from a marketplace or to purchase something from Amazon means very little. I purchase stuff all the time. I redeem things from Amazon all the time. That's not what it means. Okay? But, but, but to purchase a, a person, to redeem a slave, to purchase a slave out of a slave market so that he may be set free, well, that's a big deal. Jesus is our redeemer. He has purchased us. He has set us free from our sin, our slavery, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin and death. And how did he purchase us? With his own blood. As if we deserve the, the, the perfect blood of God to be shed for us. Christian, you have been redeemed. You've been purchased and set free by the blood of Christ. So now, Christian, you can confidently say there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Why? Because he came in the likeness of man in order that the righteous requirement of law might be fully fulfilled in you. Next, we see God the Spirit. God the Spirit. He is the enabler and the producer. God the Spirit, the enabler and the producer. The Holy Spirit is the enabler. He is the one who breathes new life into us. That's what I'm saying. He enables us. That the Spirit is the one who initiates the work of salvation. While authored by the Father, the Spirit is the one who begins the work within us. Without Him, we would have no life. We would still be spiritually dead. He is the agent that moves us from the old realm of sin and death into the new realm of life and peace. He's the one who joins us to Christ. The Spirit, He's the one who gives us eyes to see, who gives us a new heart, who gives us faith to believe, who gives us a heart of repentance. We need the Spirit. If it were not for the Holy Spirit, we could not accept the truth of God and the substitutionary work of Christ. But we would continue to be spiritually dead. Remember Mr. Dead Guy? Remember him here on the ground, Mr. Dead Guy? He can't do anything, right? Why? Because he's dead. He's Mr. Dead Guy. And you can't respond if you're dead. Unless what? Unless a divine miracle from heaven just gives you life. Then that is what the Holy Spirit does to our soul. He resurrects our souls and brings us from death to life. But not only does he enable, but he produces. The Holy Spirit produces holiness within the Christian. He produces new desires in which we used to desire the things of the world. But, but the Christian, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, now begins to desire the things of God, not the things of this world. Begins to hate sin and begins to love righteousness. He produces good works. The Christian, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, begins to live a life of good works for the honor and the praise and the glory of God. He produces fruit. The Christian, indwelt by the Holy Spirit, begins to produce the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The Christian cannot live a fruitless life. Otherwise, it will become apparent that the Holy Spirit does not indeed dwell within him. Even the Christian's good desires and his good works and the fruit, they don't come from this, this great almighty Christian that we now have. It comes from the Holy Spirit. Does the Christian choose to live and act in these ways? Yes. 
But it's by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that they're able to do so. Now lastly, our last section. It's one point, but it's not the shortest, so hang in there. The Holy Pursuit, verse 4, really 4b. As he says in 4b, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Here's your one point for this last point, the Holy Pursuit. Is that the Christian's justification is always paired with sanctification. The Christian's justification is always paired with sanctification. Paul lays out our justification, right? Being made right with God by saying that the righteous requirement of the law would be fulfilled in us through Christ. He says that, right? As we just looked at. And then he follows it up by saying that we would then walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. He's talking about our sanctification. Justification and sanctification are never apart. They are never isolated from each other. Justification and sanctification are always paired with the other. You cannot have one without the other. And while they are always paired together, it's important to know they are not the same thing. Okay, our sanctification, our pursuit of holiness, our good works, our becoming like Christ, that is not our justification. These are two separate things. We in no way are, we are no way justified. We are no way made right with God based on any of those things, based on our pursuit of holiness, based on our good works, based on becoming like Christ, looking more like him. That is not what saves us. But just because they're different, and even though we must be careful not to confuse them, it doesn't mean that we don't pursue holiness or good works. In fact, the Christian will. He must follow. Now that the Christian has been justified, has been saved, has been cleansed from their sins, he now longs and pursues a life of holiness that honors and glorifies God. That's what he does. Paul says, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. That's not a suggestion. That's not a command or... or or an admonition. It's a statement. Who walk? He's saying that that's what you do. That, that's, you do walk. He'll explain later in verse 9 that if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit indwelling in you. Every Christian does. It, it, it's not the Christian who's, who's especially mature that has the Holy Spirit. Every true Christian, without exception, has the Holy Spirit indwelling inside them. And so it's true that it's mandatory that the Christian walks in the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying that we, that we can reach the point of perfection. I'm not saying that we can live without sinning. I'm not, I'm not saying that we must live a holy life in order to be justified. I'm not saying any of that. But I'm saying that the true Christian does walk according to the Holy Spirit. That's who they are now. With the Holy Spirit inside them, they walk. Walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit who lives inside them. To walk is a habitual way of life. It's a lifestyle. It is to live in a way that is in accordance with God, not the world. In the same way that you can tell what kind of a tree it is by the fruit it bears, right? You can tell if the Holy Spirit indwells within someone based on the fruit they bear. In the same way, you can tell if someone is filled with wine based on their actions and, and, and their words. You're like, yeah, he had too much to drink. So you can tell if someone is filled with the Holy Spirit based on their outward actions and their words as well. What does your life show? What does your life reveal? 
What fruit do you bear? What do your actions and words reveal that you are filled with? If you're a Christian here today, is your life a life that pursues holiness? It's not just that the Christian has righteousness imputed onto them and and, and then that's where it ends. No, they practice righteousness as well. They walk in it. They live in a new lifestyle. Why? Because they've been given new life. If you're here and you say that you've been given new life, do you live in new life? I've just been given new life, but I don't live in new life. That doesn't make sense. Do you presume that righteousness has been imputed onto you, but you don't live in righteousness? How can that be? Now understand me correctly. The Christian's pursuit of holiness is, is, is not a form of legalism. That's not what I'm saying. The, what I'm saying is this, that, that the genuine Christian has a new nature and, and now is attuned to God's will. And in his new nature and, and through the power of the Holy Spirit, his desires have changed to desire what God wants. Of course, the Christian is still affected by the old self, by the flesh, and, and is within those moments that the Christian struggles with sin. Yes. That's what we looked at in Romans 7. The agony of of desiring the spirit to obey God, but feeling the weight of this flesh just tempting you to sin. There will be a struggle, Christian. Does the Christian sin? Does the Christian stumble on the path? Yes. But the difference is that the Christian, by the power of the Holy Spirit, gets up and continues on that path of following Jesus. And they are never fully content Unless they are following him. That's their desire. Your holiness is not to earn you favor with God. It will not earn you an ounce of his love. But your holiness is a response. It is a natural reaction to the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in you. It is how the true Christian responds to the grace of God in their life. Is this your response? Is this your response? To pursue holiness because you want nothing else but to live for God in all you do because you are so overwhelmed by his love and grace toward you. If you are truly justified, you will be truly sanctified as well. And as we're talking about assurance, you will truly be glorified. We're going to get to that. As we close tonight, I hope you were able to clearly see the gospel on display. As we begin such a wonderful chapter in Romans, what better way than to hear the truth of the gospel? I mean, to me, it doesn't get better than that. Nothing excites me more than the gospel. If you are here tonight and you don't really know what the gospel means, If you're here tonight and you're not sure how the gospel can actually have an effect on your life, please talk to me or one of the staffers or one of the students. We all love you so very much. And we know with all certainty that there is nothing more important than knowing God. You need the truth of the gospel to come alive in your soul. And if this has not happened to you, I pray that the Spirit would awaken your soul to see and accept the truth 
the gospel. And if you are a Christian, if you are a Christian, I hope this gospel is amazing to you. You've been given new life. You've been saved. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's you, Christian. I hope this overflows your heart with gratitude and thanksgiving. You've been justified. But it doesn't stop there. Your justification leads to sanctification. Christian, are you pursuing holiness? Or are you content with your life just being the same? You've been given new life. Live a new life. Do not live in the old life. Don't remain lifeless. Live a new life, Christian. Live for the Lord. As we start chapter 8, maybe it's the best one. Maybe it's not. I don't know. But the gospel is the best one. There's nothing sweeter than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let the truth of the gospel be the joy of your heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your gospel, the amazing truth of your gospel. That you are the best one. God, we love you. We thank you for loving us. We thank you, God, for the work that you've accomplished on our behalf. I pray, God, that by your spirit, we would walk according to the spirit, not according to the flesh. That we would pursue holiness for your glory. God, for those in here who do not know you in this way, God, I pray that your spirit would awaken their souls, that you would open their eyes to see you, and that you would save them, that they would see how amazing your gospel is and how worthy of praise you are. We ask you to be with us as we discuss these things, that your spirit be moving and working through each of us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.